וגם אני פתאום רואה את הקולות. Hello and welcome to our first episode of our brand new podcast. I am Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolel, and it is such an honor to welcome you to Kolot, featuring Justice Richard Bernstein. But before we get to our guests, let me tell you what this podcast is all about and why we chose the name Kolot. Some of you may have participated in or heard about our Parsha Buzz series last year. We had a weekly lesson on the Parsha and then featured a distinguished guest. It was really cool to have some of the leading business professionals, not just in central Ohio, but across the country. Over the course of the series, we learned from many different types of people from various backgrounds and professions. sharing their story, work ethic, and expertise in their respective area. And while this worked well when we couldn't do much in person, we were wondering how we pivot and continue this unique experience as we safely get back together. We didn't want to lose out on such a platform with unmatched diversity. How do we continue and maintain that priceless opportunity to learn from others? This is why we are launching this podcast, Colote. Kolot means voices, and we will be featuring the most successful individuals in all areas to hear their voice. Business, real estate, healthcare, advocacy, government, mental health, and much more. Our rabbis teach us, who is wise? One who learns from everyone. And you tuned in to the podcast that will do just that. You'll be learning priceless lessons from so many people. In this episode, you will hear the story of someone who had every excuse in the world to throw in the towel and yet never took no for an answer. It's impossible to walk away after hearing this story without being fired up about life and a commitment to using your gifts that the Almighty has given you. So without further ado, let me tell you about our guest, Justice Richard Bernstein. Bernstein became the first elected blind justice to the Michigan Supreme Court in November 2014. Prior to being elected to, the Michigan's, to Michigan's highest court, Justice Bernstein was known as a tireless advocate for disabled rights, heading the public service division for the Sam Bernstein Law Firm. And blind since birth, Justice Bernstein is a graduate of the University of Of Michigan and earned his JD from Northwestern University School of Law. In his spare time, Justice Bernstein is an avid runner, completing 25 marathons. That's why he looks so good. Including 15 New York marathons and a lot of other stuff that you've run. But I, the, the one thing that did not make it to the bio that I'm going to add in um, is that when we scheduled this interview um, just a few weeks ago in Detroit, I, uh, I, or no, I think it was when we were on the phone, when we were discussing the planning, et cetera, I asked Justice Bernstein, are there any questions I'm not allowed to ask? And Justice Bernstein said back, nope, ask away, ask anything. There's no question that you cannot ask or that I will not answer. And um, while that may not be in the printed version of the, of the bio, I do want to add, and that makes these interviews so much more fun. Uh, so much more 
um, engaging. We don't have to fear like, oh, did I get too close to a topic or something like that? So this is very exciting. And of course, I want to thank uh, Justice Bernstein for making himself for making yourself available and to his staff and Susie for all the work, technology, coordinating and everything. So Justice Bernstein, welcome to Colote. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, I want to welcome you and all the listeners here to Lansing, Michigan, where we are currently in the Hall of Justice. So it is really a pleasure to be with you. And I have to say, I really enjoyed We had a chance to meet at the Yeshiva Beth Yehuda dinner, which was in Detroit, Michigan. And it was such a wonderful evening and such a great experience. And that's where we were able to help kind of solidify our friendship. So I'm excited about your podcast. I think this is a fantastic thing that you're doing and it's my absolute pleasure to be a part of it well thank you so much it's very exciting um i want to ask you first your background uh where were you born where do you go to school um (laughs) i know we mentioned some of the hobbies are running anything else so tell us a little bit about you absolutely so i mean basically i've been blind since birth and uh was uh, born and raised here in the great state of michigan And uh, ultimately, I I think what it really comes back to is I was very blessed to have the family and the parents that I had, you know, because ultimately, they were the ones who basically inspired me and said, look, anything and everything is possible in life. And even though you have a severe disability, you have to allow that to give you the inspiration and the excitement. And my family has always had a certain natural enthusiasm and love of people and love of life. And they've always just had this belief that, you know, you should never miss a day of life and that you need to go out and live and experience every minute and every hour as much as you possibly can. But I really think that the, the, the key to the way that I was raised was I was really born with this notion that there really shouldn't be limits and that, you know, anything and everything can be possible. And when we talk about background, I was blessed to have gone to a fantastic public school system. And as I kind of think back, you know, by your question, you know, I think what I've really kind of taken away from all of this is, and since this is like a Jewish program, is that Hashem has given me all the blessings that a person could ever ask for. And I have come to realize and come to believe that our lives are defined by experiences. And the more challenges or difficulties or hardships that a person is given, they're not going to have an easy life. But I really do believe, as I kind of think back per this podcast and preparing for it, that even though you live with that sense of struggle, the struggle can define you. And that when Hashem gives you a sense of struggle. Struggle gives you passion, it gives you purpose, it gives you mission, and it gives you focus. And I think ultimately, as I kind of look back, you know, per your question at my childhood, I think it's more than just the fact that, you know, I went to Endeavor High School and then went to the University of Michigan and Northwestern Law School. I think what it really comes down to is the essence of life itself. And as I think about it, some people who are watching this podcast today who are dealing with struggle, are dealing with hardship, are dealing with adversity, are dealing with difficulties, I can promise you that 
it's never easy and it's always going to be tough. What I have really come to find is that people who really do understand and appreciate what struggle means and what struggle is, again, don't always have an easy life, but they do have one that is truly fulfilling. That's beautiful. No, that's beautiful. You know, uh, one of my great mentors, uh, Dr. David Lieberman from Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, he's a great, uh, great friend and uh, one of the master uh, researchers of, uh, you know, human behavior and mental health would o- often quote to me uh, a, a teaching from his, uh, you know, mentor and teacher, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Noah Weinberg of Esha Torah. Hey, would say that Rabbi <laughs> Noah, a blessed memory, would say to everybody, um, what's the opposite of pain? And everyone without a, uh, you know, without even thinking, they would say opposite of pain is pleasure. And Rabbi Noah would say back to them, one second, if you're telling me um, the opposite of pain is pleasure, then how is it that in order to get to pleasure, you always have to go through pain? So really, pleasure, a pain is a prerequisite to pleasure. The opposite of pain is comfort, not pleasure. To right. get to pleasure, you have to go through struggles and challenges. Well, the ancient Greeks would ask a single question upon a person's death. They would ask, was this a person who lived their life with passion? And I really believe that the, the way I've lived, I've had the opportunity to surround myself with people who have to understand and appreciate hardship every single day. And what you come to find is that when you look back at life, it is always the people that have to live that way whose lives turn out to be the most extraordinary and the most meaningful because it's not ordinary it becomes truly extraordinary when you have to have these experiences and weather these conditions and go through the things you have to go through. But then when you come back and you look at it, you can say to yourself, wow, this was a remarkable experience that I never anticipated and a life I never envisioned would ever happen. But that's just the way it is. And I think for a lot of people, Rabbi, that are watching this program right now who are younger I think the key message that we really want to send to them is, is that, you know, if you're in high school, you're in middle school and you're having a difficult time, you know, I wish that someone had told me this because it would make it a lot easier. Sometimes in life, you just have to get through it. You know, you, you, you do the best that you can try to take out of it, whatever you can. But at the end of the day, just focus on getting through it. Like for me, it was incredibly difficult to have to go through high school. It was certainly not an enjoyable time. I was the only disabled person in my entire district. It was just not a place that I really fit into very easily. And what I came to realize is, is is that so often, Rabbi, that the younger people that are watching us right now, you tend to think about when you're in high school or when you're in middle school, who you are and where you fall in the social hierarchy. You tend to think that, this is how it's going to be for the rest of your life. Because, you know, for you at this time, you tend to believe that this is the entire world as you know it. And I think what's important about this podcast and why I'm excited to do this is is that for so many people that are watching this right now that are not having the best experience and have a difficult time waking up and ultimately having to face the challenges and difficulties of their day, The thing that I want you to focus on is this notion. 
do the best you can to get through it. In certain situations, you just have to accept that this is going to be a difficult time in life. But here's the beauty of it. If you can take something positive from it, if you can take what you can from it and just allow it for yourself to get through this experience, what always tends to happen is the people that have to struggle the most in high school and middle school and all aspects of secondary education, it is always those people who will go on to have the best lives. It is always those people who go on to do really remarkable things. And it is always those people who go on to do literally nothing less than change the world as we know it. And that's the key. So if you're out there and you're having these difficult times and you're saying to yourself, you know what, getting through secondary education just feels like something I just can't seem to get through or something I can't really survive. What you have to know is, is that Hashem created you in this fashion, in this image, with this understanding that it's through your life experiences and through the challenges that you're going to have at this time and at this moment that you will go off and ultimately live a remarkable life. You will meet unique people. You will travel to far off lands and you will have the most profound impact that you could ever hope to have. You don't realize it now because it's so difficult, but it's only through the experiences that you're having now that you'll be able to shape the world in the fashion that only you can create from the experiences and the understandings that you're gaining through this perspective. Wow. We, uh, you, you, that was a lot right there. That was, that was powerful. So you have some younger people that are, you know, that are watching or parents of folks that, you know, are facing some difficult times right now because so often what they tend to do is they always tell their kids, oh, we'll try to fit in, you know, or try to become more popular or try to do this or try to do that. And sometimes the best approach that you can take in this situation is just try to say, look, you know what? <clears throat> right now it might not be your time, but your time will come. And if you can make it through this stage of life, because life is phases. That's all life is. Life is a series of phases that you're ultimately going through. Some phases are going to be better than others, but it's literally just phases. And so basically you just have to focus on the phase that you're in. And sometimes getting through the phase that you're in will ultimately allow for you to make it to the next transition. And for so many people, the kind of younger phases are really difficult, but if you can survive the younger phases, then the ultimate reward for that is the impact and the effect you get to have as you move forward into the universe. Wow. So you're sharing, as I listen to you, I can't help but think you're sharing an incredible perspective. And of course, so much of life is um, not necessarily just what happens, but it's how we understand, perceive, accept, and respond. Um, you know, they, the, the old saying goes, uh, you know, the city of happiness is in the state of mind. I'm sure you've heard that one before. Um, you had this incredible perspective. I'm sure it was not this way while you were climbing, you know, while you were going up this ladder. You mentioned middle school and high school. Um, right. And today, as we speak, you're the 
you're sitting on the Supreme Court. You're the first blind person to be on the Supreme Court in Michigan. How did you get there? Walk us through that journey. Yeah. So I think that, that you know, I, I like your, your quote about being a state of mind. This is, I think, the key emphasis is, is that I don't think that life is really all about trying to find happiness. I think what it really comes down to is having a sense of meaning, having a sense of purpose. And what's so interesting, and it's, again, just focusing on, you know, some of the younger people or some of the folks that are out there, you know, that are dealing with folks that are facing challenges. The most important thing that people have to have is they have to have a sense of being needed. That's the most important thing. If there's one quality that people have to have, it's the fact that they have to feel or know or believe that they are needed. That's what's absolutely critical. If a person isn't needed, they don't really exist. But if a person feels that they are needed, then ultimately that gives them their sense of value and that gives them their sense of focus and that gives them their overall ideology and that it allows for them to have that sense of belonging kind of in the, in the aspect of that, okay, they're created for a purpose. They're created for meaning. There's a reason why they exist and why they were sent. And now they have to live up to and adhere to that purpose and to that ultimate meaning. And I think when you ask the question, you know, how do you, you know, how did you get to the Supreme Court? I think it just comes out of a sense of overall mission. And that, you know, for me, you know, I've just, I've always lived my life with that sense of focus and that sense that, okay, I've been, I've just come to believe that often is the case that dreams get replaced by wisdom for a lot of people who have to, you know, face the difficulties that they have to contend with each and every day. And I think, you know, for someone like myself, I think it's important to kind of point out that according to the U.S. Census, 85% of the blind community is currently unemployed. Now, that's not because blind people aren't smart and sophisticated and, and are not hardworking and don't have incredible stories to share. The reason that you have such a high unemployment rate amongst the blind community is solely and exclusively socioeconomic. It's just that simple. It's socioeconomic. And just to kind of, you know, be very direct, you know, I came from a family and from a background where we had tremendous financial resources. And it was because of those financial resources and the support that I had from my family that I was able to have these incredible opportunities. But I think what's very important, and I'm always very cautious about this whenever I, you know, do an interview, because what always happens is, is, is that people will say, oh, you know, I heard about this blind guy and he does all these things. And then, you know, they create this unreasonable bar where everyone will say, oh, I know this one blind guy, or this is one disabled person that they know. And, you know, and that, and, and what sometimes happens is, is that that person now has to live with these heightened expectations, right? Oh, I know this blind person that climbs mountains or does all these things. And everyone knows the one blind person who does, you know, these different unique things. And so people tend to say, oh, well, you know, this guy's blind and he does all these things. And then what happens is it creates 
you know, a different level of expectation that actually makes it harder for folks that are really just struggling to kind of get through the day. And the reason I share that is, is because you always have to respect that everybody has their own unique story and their own understanding and appreciation of life that allows for them to be who it is that they ultimately are. And the reason that I share that is because in my situation, I was given tremendous opportunities, tremendous opportunities. But I want to be very clear. If I hadn't come from the family that I had come from, if I didn't have the financial opportunities that I was given and the resources that I was blessed with, I would be part of the 85% that's currently unemployed. It's just that simple. I was given certain advantages that allowed for me to have these opportunities. If I wasn't given those opportunities or advantages, there's absolutely no doubt and no question that I would be part of the 85% that is currently unemployed. And I think that's just something that I really want to make, make certain is kind of understood. And the reason that I am so dedicated to the work that I ultimately do is because it's rare that you have a unique circumstance where you have a person that basically understands discrimination, understands basically what it's like to have to be counted out, understands you know the notion of being different. So I understand conceptually all of these different things because this is how I live. But there's a certain component that makes all the difference where I also have because of the way and the family I was born into I have the opportunity to take the experiences that I have and do something with them that can ultimately create change and make life better for other people and that's why I'm so dedicated to the work that I do is because I want to make life better for others because I've been given the opportunity to do it with the resources that I was blessed with, but also with the life experiences that I've also been able to live with that give me the understanding of the challenges and difficulties that people have to face every day, but then giving me the opportunity to actually stand up and do something about it. Wow. Wow. No, that's, that's a beautiful thought um, of turning someone's uh, one's challenges into a blessing, not just for themselves, but for others. I, I love that. Um, I want to know everybody. Most people that have disabilities will do that. Most people will do that. Can't speak for everybody, mm-hmm. but what you will tend to find is the people that think about it this way. The people that go into physical therapy tend to be people who've had catastrophic injuries, either themselves or with family, or with people that they're close with. It's people that have certain life experiences that basically are governed by those experiences and ultimately use them to have the impact that they have. And so what usually happens is, it's always the people that, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, that have the greatest of struggles that are the ones who do the most with it. Because they realize that, okay, you know what? Today, I need to go out do something with the day that gives it meaning, that gives it purpose, that gives it focus. And honestly, it's really not about this sense of, oh, I want to be happy. It's about having that sense of purpose and meaning. And I keep going back to that because people who live with that 
really, I believe, get to live the most fulfilling of lives. And, mo- and, and but, but make no mistake, it's not easy. It's just fulfilling. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you work hard, but at the end of the day, you have a certain regret, you know, a certain uh, satisfaction, a certain like accomplished sense of accomplishment that may have trained you. You've been given perspective. You've been given a sense of perspective because now you have these experiences that define you and these experiences ultimately give you that sense of overall perspective. Right. Right. No, that's, that's incredible. I want to now go in a little further. You mentioned the 85%. Yes. 15%. So I can't help but think to myself. um, So you mentioned that your parents and your family was, you know, you were blessed to have the resources to, you know, that could help you get that 15%. And you seem very motivated in expanding that 15%. Correct. Uh, my, My question is, fine. So you had all those things, but then where did you know, okay, you know what law is it? I wanted, I wanted to, you know, I want to become a lawyer. I wanted to become a judge. You know, where did that hit you in this process? I think it hit me in the sense of, it gave me that sense of purpose. And what I mean by that is, is that the law is the one thing that can really effectuate change. And it's the one thing that can really have an effect on greater society. And it's the one thing where basically people who live without a voice can have one within the judicial system. By no means is the judicial system even remotely perfect, but it can do some great things. And that's, you know, you just have to have that idealistic perspective. I mean, look, by no means is it a perfect system, but for the most part, it really does give people a voice and it's through that voice that they get representation and that change can ultimately come about and can truly happen. And that's a powerful, like a, that's a very powerful attribute to what it means and to ultimately what it represents. And so for me, you know, going through law school, you know, was no easy feat. Um, you know, I, I don't read and write, so I have to memorize and internalize everything and, you know, getting through law school was every single day was just, I would just pray that I could just get through it. That's all I wanted to do was just make it through and just survive. And, and I just wanted to become a lawyer in the worst way. And for a lot of folks that are, you know, participating in this podcast today, you know, something that they should kind of keep in mind is, is that when I was in school, I remember the people I was close with and so many of the folks you know, they just, it just came to them easily. You know, things just came easily. You know, they would do their work, but then they would get all A's and they'd be the top of the class. And they were the ones that were going to go on and, you know, get the great law firm jobs and do all those kinds of things. But what was really interesting was people like myself and the, the people that I was really close with, you know, the people I was the closest with in the class, you know, we were the, we were the different ones. You know, we didn't really fit in with everybody else. And, you know, we were definitely, I guess, you know, in a more generous way, you could say that we were the more unique ones, right? But we were definitely towards the bottom of the class. And we were the people that, you know, were just different, right? We were just different. Nothing came to us easily. 
you know, we were just trying to get through and we were just trying to make it to graduation. That was our goal. And it's so funny because it was always those people that were kind of the ones that just, you know, that, that had to kind of find their own way and kind of create their own path who now are really doing the work that they've always wanted to do. And they're really doing things that they never thought possible because of the fact that opportunities weren't presented to us the way that they were presented to everybody else. And so as a result, we had to kind of carve our own path and we had to kind of find our own way. And I think that the people that have to do that are the ones that just become really resourceful. And they're also, even during these difficult times, they're also the most optimistic and they tend to be the most idealistic. That doesn't mean that we're naive. It just means that, you know, we, we have an inherent sense of optimism and idealism that's grounded in reality because we have enough life experience to know what is possible and what can be achieved in terms of what has to be overcome to do it. And I think that, that that's really the beauty of it is, is it's just always the people that you least expect it is always the people that get counted out. It is always the people who don't really know what their place is. And it's always the people that are usually towards the bottom that are the ones that wind up having the greatest opportunities and greatest change and impact on the world. It is always that. Because you know why? They are the ones that are able to empathize, understand, and connect to others. What's the saying that the... Um the A student is hired by the B student to work in the C student's company or something like that. <laughs> right. I know what you're, I know where you're going. It's, 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 it's the, it's the C student, but it's just, it, it, if it's a C student because they're working hard, but they're just, they're, they're hard workers and they're tenacious and, you know, they just have a lot of things going on and they're just pushing past and they're just pushing through those are the ones who usually wind up achieving the most because again, they're driven by something internal and, you know, they're, they're driven by something really meaningful and powerful that just pushes them through. Right. Right. Now that's beautiful. Uh, that's, you know, you mentioned, you know, one of the things that spoke to you about law was that it's a it's something that can really make a difference in people's lives. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you if you had a specific legal mentor or a specific legal philosophy or approach that you have, you know, that's gravitated towards you and you have adopted. That's a great question. I would say that the the way that I try to approach the law. I could give you an academic, quote unquote, intellectual answer, but I think the way that I approach the law is in a more pragmatic, practical way. And I do believe that, you know, as you, you know, basically apply the facts of the law, you know, and I think it's very important. There's, 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 I think some of the key things that go into being a good judge is that you have to stay in your lane. That's very, very important. And, and I think that, <clears throat> the vast majority of judges are very good at that because we have a checks and balances system and that's the way our government operates and it's the way our government works. And I think that good jurists, you know, people that are really um, good um, jurists 
understand how the checks and balances system works, but most importantly, we understand our place and we understand our lane, right? We, we're not here to legislate. You know, if you're looking to legislate, go to Congress. It's really my job to interpret the statutes that are put before us and make sure that the statutes that are created and implement are both state and federally constitutional. That's really kind of what our responsibility and what our job is to do. But for me, what's really interesting is, is, is that, you know, people always say, well, what's it like to be, you know, a blind Supreme Court justice? I mean, this is highly unusual to be on, you know, to be elected to your state's highest court. And my response is, is, is that my focus is just being an outstanding judge. Because it's one of those situations where when people see a severely disabled person doing their job, but doing their job well, that speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. And then even if people don't necessarily like the outcome, they could appreciate that it was what the judge felt the right thing, not some perhaps ulterior motive or, you know, anything other than the correct understanding of the law and nothing to do with anything but that. There's only one job that a judge has to do, and that is to be fair. That's it. People need to be treated fairly and they need to be heard. And the most important thing is when somebody comes to court, it's their day. It's their day. They've waited years for this opportunity. They have gone through so much to get here, but this is their day and this is their moment. And that always has to be respected. So if you want to do this job well, the thing that you need to do if you want to be a good judge is you've got to make sure that when people walk out of the courtroom, they might disagree with the decision. They might not be happy with the decision. But the one thing that they have to say is, is that, you know what, I was treated fair and I might disagree with the outcome, but I respect how the outcome was made. That's absolutely critical. And it must be critical in order to ensure that our system survives. Oh, that's great. That's a very, that's a very important uh, point. Um, I want to know. I mean, think about it, Rabbi. Though, it's the one. The judiciary is the one branch that people have the most respect for. If you were to look at the executive branch and you look at the uh, legislative branch, I think the judicial branch is the one branch that, during difficult, turbulent times, needs to rise and needs to make sure that it does its job flawlessly, because it's the one branch that people still have tremendous respect for, no matter what party or where you're from people respect the judicial branch. Yeah. It's up to us to maintain and earn that respect every single day by being impartial, non-biased, and fair. No, that's, that's great. Um, and, it, and it must, correct, 100% must uh, at all costs remain that way. Correct. Sure. Um, is, is there a part of law that you know, fascinates you more than others, something that like stands out, like you listening, you really, you know, are just dying to like get into more a, a certain type. Well, here at the Supreme Court, you know, we're again, it's the last resort for the state of Michigan. Every case is really compelling. There's 11 million people who live in the great state of Michigan. 
And again, we are the, we are the court of absolute last resort. So we're generalists. We hear everything. We hear everything from murder to rape on the criminal side to everything from tax cases that can be in the billions to environmental cases to personal injury cases to abuse and neglect cases. There's really no area of law that our court doesn't delve into and ultimately is not a part of. And so I think, you know, what makes the job kind of really extraordinary is, is that you could be reading and, you know, learning, you know, going through the briefs on a murder case literally one day. And then the next day you're learning about a nuclear power plant and the impact and effect it's going to have on the Great Lakes to the next case dealing with water reclamation and the next case, you know, dealing with a tax matter that basically, you know, could impact the state treasury by billions of dollars that could, you know, ultimately affect both the taxpayer and the types of resources the state needs, like police and fire and schools. And so literally, like, you are making decisions every day that will affect people's lives in, without question, the most intensive manner. And I think that when people ask, so, you know, when you make a decision, you know, do you sleep at night? And the answer is usually not so well, because any judge that takes this job seriously and is focused on what they're doing and understands the gravity of the situation is always second guessing, is always being contemplative, is always thinking about what they've done and what the ramifications of their decisions are. I mean, in many situations, you're dealing with life and death. You're dealing with people's freedom. I mean, what could possibly be more significant than dealing with the freedom of another human being? Nothing. And so I think that in answer to your question, every case matters and every case is significant. I do tend to find um, a certain heightened interest in uh, wrongful conviction matters. I think, you know, that's a, a part of the system that, you know, I think is incredibly significant and incredibly important. It's, you know, one of the things that people talk about when you become a judge is, is that, you know, when I was a litigator for 15 years, you know, I used to really, I was a part of the action, right? I was on the field. I was playing the game. And when you're a litigator, that's what you do. I mean, you're, you're part of the action. You're out there on the field. You're out there, you know, really participating and you're just kind of doing your thing. But when you become a judge, you are no longer going to do that. You're now going to become the ref and you've got to be a good ref. You're no longer on the field. You're no longer running the ball. You are going to be the ref. You're going to be refereeing the game that's being played in front of you. And you just have to do that well. And you have to make sure that it's always done well. But some of the interest, some of the issues that I've, you know, or some of the things that I've always, you know, been captivated by and really focusing on are matters of wrongful conviction. And if you, you know, I've had the chance to write some, you know, really exciting opinions um, that have basically changed people's lives. And, you know, I can think of a few opinions that I've been. Share one. Sure, I you know I can share an opinion that basically, um, you know, I'm incredibly proud of. I mean, look, 
when you're dealing with wrongful conviction, you know, these folks are never going to get their lives back. I mean, you're talking about people that, you know, have been removed from society and it's not just they lost time. You know, when people sit there and they say, oh, well, you know, this person spent 10, 15 years in prison. What people have to realize is, is that, you know, I do prison inspection tours. And what I can tell you is it's not just that you're losing time by being in prison, that when you're in prison, every day is a day for a fight for survival. I mean, you, when people are in prison, you know, you're just praying that you're going to survive the day and not look at someone in the wrong way where you're going to anger them to the point that they'll kill you. I mean, you're talking about some really horrific circumstances that people are in. And a lot of folks who have been innocent are put into those situations. And I think that that is something that you always have to be mindful of. So, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice has a really interesting statistic that basically says 15% of people who are currently incarcerated are innocent. That's a U.S. Department of Justice finding that 15% of people who are currently incarcerated um, are completely innocent of the crime which they are convicted of. And so I would say I've had the opportunity to play a role in a number of these cases. And I can think of one case in particular where you had two young men that spent about 18 years in prison and ultimately you know, they were deemed to be innocent. And I uh, was able to write the opinion that ultimately freed them. And now here's the thing, you know, after 18 years of being in prison, think about it, everyone else has moved on. You know, your family's moved on, your friends have moved on. I mean, you have it, you're stuck in the same place, but everyone else has moved on. So what you have to realize is, is that when those people are exonerated, it's not that they come out and are able to just move on with their lives, their lives are still going to be, for all intents and purposes, destroyed. But at least, you know, you're taking a, a really difficult and horrendous situation and you're attempting to make it better. And you're leaving an otherwise bad situation better than you had found it. And at least I can cling to that knowing that you tried to do something that's going to make life better for other people. And when people ask, you know, why do you do this job? And keep this in mind. If it takes you an hour to do something, it takes me five hours to do the same thing. I have to memorize all the cases that come before me. We usually have 25 cases every week at the conference phase. And as a blind person, I can't, as I said before, I can't read and write. So people say, oh, well, do you put the cases into Braille? Well, the answer is absolutely not. You can't put these cases into Braille. If I give you a murder case transcript that, you know, basically where you have a three-week murder trial, you can't put that into Braille because if I give you one textbook page, you're going to give me 65 Braille pages. So Braille is simply not an option. And then you would say, well, what about, like, what about using technology? Well, technology is not going to work. That's not going to work at all at a conference situation. Because if I'm trying to, you know, work with my computer and be on my headset, I'm not going to be able to participate or hear what the other judges are talking about. And if I'm not part of the conversation, my role at conference is going to be meaningless. So how do I do it? I memorize all the cases. And what will happen is the commissioner will say, justices, we are now at case 18. And they'll say case 18 is a carjacking case that resulted in two homicides. 
So when I hear carjacking resulting in two homicides, I'm able to recall the case in its entirety. Now, I can't recall it word for word because that's not possible, but I will know it to such an extent that all the legal issues that are relevant within that case, I'll be able to argue and be able to make a presentation based off of my preparation. And now I have one other challenge. It's not just that I'm responsible for that case and have to vote on that case. I have to know all the common law cases that correspond to that case. So I have to know all the common law cases that work in favor of my position. And I have to be able to distinguish all the cases that work against the argument that I'm attempting to make. And it, it's not one of those situations where you just simply walk in and just simply say, oh, wow, you know, this person was treated unfairly, so we need to give them a new trial. It doesn't work that way. You've got to put forth an argument. You have to be able to make a legal argument as to why the facts in this case and why the procedure that basically was held was not done in conformance with the Constitution, so thus requires a new trial. But you have to put forth an argument. And at the end of the day, nobody really cares that you're blind because these are people's lives that are hanging in the balance. And you know what, Rabbi? I went and ran for this position. I'm elected. I am not appointed. I am elected. And so I went out and asked the people of the state of Michigan to give me this chance and to afford me this opportunity. So when I go into conference, when I go into oral arguments, there's no excuses. The stakes are too high. You have to perform and you have to perform perfectly. And you can't miss a case and you can't miss a day because it's someone's life that's going to ultimately be impacted. So you better rise to the occasion because I asked for this position. I asked for this responsibility and I was given this opportunity by the people of the state of Michigan who voted for me to have this chance to serve them in this capacity. So at the end of the day, I asked for this. And now I've got to perform and do this to the best of my ability, because like I said before, people's lives are counting on it. Wow. Uh, sounds like someone who takes their job as seriously as one could. <laughs> I like that. I think most judges do, because they really do understand the consequences of what it is that they're doing. So now I want to go to the next topic as we get a little closer into the hour as we get close to finishing the hour, uh, I understand that you're also somewhat involved with Partners in Torah. And I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Jewish learning. You know, you're not, you know, able to open a text, whether it's a Siddur or Chumash or Talmud or anything like that. So do you enjoy Jewish learning? And if so, how so? That's a beautiful question. So, you know, honestly, we're all looking for our own connection. And we're all trying to find Hashem in our own way. And so for me, quite candidly, I don't necessarily find Hashem through kind of the traditional synagogue path, because as a blind person, I'm not really able to follow the service. I don't really know what's going on. So I'm not really able to participate to that degree and at that level. I've always found Hashem through athletic competition. That's why I do it. And as you said in the beginning of our conversation today, I've completed 25 marathons and a full Ironman competition. 
And the reason I share that with you is because when you're doing an Ironman, I want you to picture, if you would, the feeling you have as you dive into a frigid body of water. Now, the water temperature that morning of Lake Coeur d'Alene was 55 degrees. I want you to envision swimming in total darkness. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's happening. You cannot communicate with your guide because you're underwater and so is he. So you can't communicate with them. Now you feel the tug on the rope and that's the indication as to which way to swim. But while you're doing this, you repeatedly get kicked in the face by all the other swimmers. People push you down so they can swim over you to get past you. They don't mean it. It's just a competitive situation. And then other people become entangled and ensnared in the rope that connects you to your guide. And when they become entangled, the rope becomes constrictive. And as the rope constricts, it starts taking you below the waves. And as it takes you below the waves, you can't get oxygen. And when you can't get oxygen, you start to drown. And so I think for me, the reason I do these endurance competitions, like the 25 marathons and like the Ironman, is because it's easy to have a relationship with Hashem when your life is going well, when you're in good health, when your businesses are doing well, when everything is going your way. I think the real nature of relationship comes in when things aren't going so great. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be happy. And it doesn't mean you have to smile. And it doesn't mean that you have to find joy in it. But for me, I've come to the conclusion that what happens is that you come to forge a relationship with the creator when you're in pain, when the outcome is uncertain, and when you just don't know what's going to happen. And what you tend to find, and I guarantee if you interview some more folks that have disabilities and that are going through these kind of challenges, they're going to tell you the same thing. They're going to tell you that for so many of us, our bodies are mortal. And for some of us, our bodies are infirmed. But we tend to have the strongest of spirits and the most beautiful of souls. And what tends to occur is, is that we're able, because of the way that God created us, where the flesh is infirmed and where we know mortality. But what ultimately happens is, is that the body disconnects from the spirit. And ultimately, the limitations of the flesh are replaced by the power of the soul. And you come to realize that those who have infirmities and mortality have souls and spirits that through tenacity and resilience and strength are able to pierce the heavens and literally touch the face of God. So when you ask, you know, what role does Jewish learning play? I'm pretty unconventional. My response to you is, is that I find Hashem through athletics and I find him through endurance. And I just want to share with you one story that I think really goes to that. So it was a few years back 
and I had just completed my 17th marathon. Now, I was in absolute perfect condition. I mean, my body was in mint shape. And I was walking in Central Park. Now, I've learned and memorized the loop that serves as a circumference of Central Park. And as I was walking in Central Park, I can do it independently without an escort or without a guide. And as I was walking in the pedestrian lane, a cyclist was going over 35 miles an hour. And due to his high rate of speed, he hit the hill at 90th and wasn't able to maintain control of his bicycle. And in doing so, he veered into the pedestrian lane where I was walking and struck me directly in the back. Now, he was going over 35 miles an hour. So the impact was catastrophic. And this required over 10 weeks of hospitalization at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. And I had to learn how to do everything all over again from the very beginning, not to mention having to deal with pain that is literally indescribable, that stays with you each and every day. Because certain injuries, that's just the way it is. And you know what's interesting is, is that often as the case, people will always you know, say things like, oh, you're going to be fine, or you're going to make a full recovery, or everything's going to be okay. But you know, Rabbi, you and I both know this. It's the worst thing you can say to someone. Right. People, need, people need to never say that again. Because the vast majority of people are not going to be okay and they're not going to be fine. The real challenge or real mechanism for survival is the power to adapt, to adapt to your new circumstance, to adapt to your new situation, to adapt to your new body, and to adapt to your new way of life. Power comes in adapting. And so for me, you know, it was very traumatic because you couldn't use the bathroom. You couldn't take a shower. You would lie in bed, writhing in pain constantly without any interruption or no end to it. And it was one of those situations where people came to visit. And I'd always say, so, you know, what are you doing when you leave Sinai? And they'd always tell me, oh, I'm going to go visit some friends or go back to the office or get some dinner. They'd say it in a very rudimentary, mundane way. I'd always tell them, you know, life is about the small things, not the big things. It's never about the big. It is always about the little. And the key to it was that you, you, you have to appreciate life at its essence and life at its core. And I would tell people, look, when you're outside, that's something I dream about. When you go to a restaurant, that's something that like, I just think about and pray that maybe I'll have a chance to do that. I mean, those simple things become literally the essence of your existence. And I'll just tell you one kind of last story is when we talk about Jewish learning is, is that, you know, as I kind of worked, you know, and eventually I would, you know, start moving my leg and I started using a walker and I was able to get to the end of my ward and visit the nurses on my own power and I just, we just kept working and we kept working. And I had to learn how to walk again and do all this stuff from the beginning. And it was time for the New York City Marathon. And it would be my 18th marathon, but it would be my first after a catastrophic injury. And as we were running to the streets of New York, I remember getting to the 59th Street Bridge 
and started running up First Avenue at mile 18. And the pain was becoming so severe and so intense that I remember reaching up to the heavens and praying to Hashem and saying, Hashem, please, just let me have this. Just please, let me just have this. When you ask about learning and you ask about Torah and you ask about study, for me, it all reveals itself on First Avenue at mile 18. Because what ultimately occurred was the pain was becoming just undescribable. And I think this happens to all of us. There exists a fierce battle within your soul. And you literally, you are filled with rage and you are filled with anger and you are filled with resentment and you are filled with disappointment. And these emotions have a cataclysmic collision and you can literally feel the storm as it rages inside you. You can genuinely sense the lightning and you can hear the thunder and you can feel the ferocious wind because it's the anger and it's the frustration and it's all of this coming together all at one time. And it's just this unbelievable battle that is existing within you. And when you ask about study and Torah and you ask about learning, for me, it was on First Avenue at mile 18 that I was able to find what I was looking for and what I believe most people are looking for. I was able to find peace with my new body, with my new circumstance, with my new situation. But most importantly, I was able to make my peace with Hashem. And I think at the end of the day, when people ask this question, why is it that bad things happen to otherwise good people? And why is it that there are some who come to know a greater struggle or greater hardship than others? I think the answer goes something like this. At a certain point in life, you can't spend your energy and your time and your effort focusing on how you're going to get over it. For you come to realize that there is simply no other alternative but to just get on with it. Because I've come to find that it's always those who will do what is hard that will achieve no less than what is truly great. And you have to look at your life like a novel. And there are always chapters. Chapters of pain, setback, sorrow, and frustration. But it's only through those chapters you're going to come to find hope, joy, and ultimately triumph. And I think we can conclude when we talk about Jewish learning with the story that I always live by. And it's the story of, that we all know, the angel visiting Jacob in the night. As we know, there existed a tremendous battle. And the fight raged until the dawn. And when the sun rose, the angel blessed Jacob. But we learn that he gave Jacob a new name, the name of Israel, which translates to mean 
one who struggles with God. But the scripture teaches us that Jacob was not left uninjured. He was actually given a shattered hip and he would walk with a limp and no tremendous pain for the remainder of his days. I believe we learn this for this reason. It was only because of Jacob's pain and his setbacks and his challenges that he was able to connect, understand, relate, and empathize. And it was only through those qualities that he was able to become a leader and ultimately the father of a nation. And I think from my perspective, you know, if I hadn't had the challenges or difficulties in my life, I don't think I'd be a good judge. I wouldn't be as kind. I wouldn't be as merciful. I wouldn't be as patient. And I wouldn't be as understanding. So I think, Rabbi, the essence of study for me and for many others is ultimately trying to find our connection. But most importantly, it comes when we're able to find what I think we're all trying to seek, which is peace. Peace with who we are, peace with how we've been created, but most importantly, peace with our creator. Wow. (laughs) That was incredible. That is beautiful, especially as we get, uh, as we near uh, Hanukkah, you know, as we say, you know, we're, we're bringing in light to everyone's homes, but into our hearts to have that sense of pride of who we are and accept who we are and the gifts that the Almighty gave us. Uh, what a beautiful message. Um, I so much appreciate you coming on, Justice Richard Bernstein from State of Michigan Supreme Court. This was uh, quite some uh, program to have you join us and to kick this off, Colotes, where we have voices, and to have your voice on our program is something we are so thankful for. So maybe we'll be able to see you in person in Columbus. I know you asked us when we're coming to Detroit, but it would be be my great pleasure. And Rabbi, thank you for this opportunity and may God bless you. And may he bless all those who are watching and listening today. And I will see you shortly in Columbus. If you invite me, I'll be (laughs) Okay. I hope Susie heard that. We'll be in touch. (laughs) Thank you, Rabbi. Take care. All the best. All the best. What an interview. What a story. And who knew all it would take is a simple joke at the end of an interview and a Supreme Court justice will come visit us here in Columbus. If you want to meet Justice Bernstein in person, please make sure to email info at thecolo.org to learn about our upcoming event on December 5th. This is Rabbi Hill Kappenstein. Thank you for tuning in. Can't wait to see you next time. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit ColotePodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men, and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvot at the Kolel. 
Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L.org. And forever be inspired. 